Hello and welcome to our second episode of the Kids Media Club podcast. I'm Andy Williams, a producer and director working in family and kids media for 20 years or so, and my brilliant co-host is Joe Redfern. Hello uh, and welcome back. I'm Joe, Global Brand Director at Sutiki, and we develop and produce kids content. So naturally, thinking about where and how to get that content that we make in front of kids is a key part of my thinking. So we're delighted today to be speaking with a couple of people who make it their business to know about trends in distribution within what is an ever-changing media landscape. And so we're excited to welcome Emily Horgan and Dominic Gardner to the podcast. So welcome to the second episode of the Kids Media Podcast. Uh, I'm very excited to get started on this discussion. Could you both kind of briefly introduce yourselves and your roles? Sure. So uh, my name is Emily Horgan. I'm a, a Disney veteran and an independent kids media consultant with a focus on franchise content strategy and Netflix. Hello, I'm Dominic Gardner. I'm the CEO of Jetpack Distribution. I'm also a, a Disney veteran, as it happens, but that's, I think, a coincidence. Um, and I run Jetpack Distribution. Scary. And you know that all four of us are also Disney veterans, so that... That makes it very cliquey. So ironically, we've never met each other before, you know. So. Absolutely. Uh, but yeah, it's kind of, it's it's odd that a lot of those, um, a lot of those shared experiences of all being at Disney at different times. Okay, well, let's get started uh, with regards to the subject of this podcast today, and that's trends in distribution. So I'm going to come to you first, Emily, and and start with, what are the measures and the metrics available and, and which ones do you favour when you're looking at the performance of content uh, in the media landscape? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much, Joe. Um, I suppose it's a very interesting landscape these days because the what the lovely warm blanket of, of linear TV ratings has kind of been eroded by all of the over over the top services that we are seeing both globally from the big streamers like Netflix and Disney Plus, but also you know local local over the top on demand services, uh, and all all the all the platforms hold uh, all that lovely data these days. So we're left with uh, not a, not a great deal to pick from. So in terms of metrics, the things that I tend to look at are um, so the Netflix top ten, the Netflix top ten uh, 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 table, uh, and they are rolling that out onto many other platforms now. Um, I actually just read a really uh, great uh, Vulture article recently, which kind of discussed Netflix's motivation to keep that table um, genuine and, and not to, you know, that they really actually believe in the value of keeping it a true representation of what's trending on their platform and, and they aren't kind of uh, twiddling around the scenes to make it, it work better for the content that they would favour. I look at the Nielsen top 10 in the US as well. So there's an SVOD Nielsen uh, top 10 that's released on a weekly basis. Obviously that's US specific data and look at it looks only at tv screens it doesn't necessarily capture mobile and 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 uh, laptop but it is a good start and it's something that's transparent which i always find with with metrics is quite quite important because you can definitely you know a, a, an individual research study here and there isn't going to tell an overall trend story and um, the other thing i would look at as well would be google trends that can be handy it can be a bit tricky sometimes when 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 uh, when a, when a, a search a search term isn't very clean, so if you look at something like Disney Soul, 
And um, so people ask Google a lot of big questions about that kind of thing. So the metric for that isn't necessarily very clean, but um, it's, it's definitely a good place to, to look for, for titles and be able to compare titles to see what the, the interest in them is. And again, the great thing about Google Trends and the top tens is that th these are global metrics that are available in many. Those are the kind of things uh, that I look at when I'm trying to assess what content is, is performing. Thank you. And, and how about you, Dominic? Where do you tend to look? What, what resources do you use if you're trying to track performance? It's a very difficult subject for a lot of distributors to tackle is, is getting access to data and, and research. As we mentioned at the beginning of the call, you know, I'm a Disney veteran, but as you know, I was in content programming for years. So you take it for granted when you work for a broadcaster that not only do you have access to Barb and the tools that sit on top of Barb, you have a team of people that as long as you can, you know, carve out 30 minutes with them, you can ask them tons of questions and they can produce you lovely reports with lots of lovely charts and explaining how performance is trending, etc. When when we started Jetpack, you know, you suddenly found that if you wanted access to that kind of data, not only is it takes a lot of time, but it's very expensive. The, the, the data you have to acquire it, the agencies who have access will provide you with customized reports if you ask for something in particular on a global basis, but it's not cheap. And even some of our yeah. biggest clients who have got, you know, considerable marketing budgets, even they struggle sometimes to maintain cost of access. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm furiously scribbling down everything Emily says, as I'm thinking these are really good top tips. Um, particularly, you know, you can access Barb, you know, through, to, through a degree, to a level, um, for, which is great for, you know, UK channels, but if a show's not on in the UK, then that's of no use to you. And if it's not in the top 10 or top 20, again, and it's very, very simplistic rankings with numbers that really mean nothing. So if you're really looking at the trend of a show or you know whether something's going up or down or accelerating, it's very, very difficult. We also use, you know, I use YouTube simplistically, just look at uh, if it has a channel, look at the number of views, how long has it been on there, try and work out some sort of metric, but you know, you find yourself doing your own kind of analysis, which is interesting, but not sellable. Um, so we rely heavily on the broadcasters that we sell to and the cooperation that they will tell us how a program has done once after they've aired it. Um, but, you know, as many of us know, that's a resource you can't pull on on a daily or weekly basis. You might get one or two favors up front, but you can't go back every single month asking for updates and reports. They're simply not equipped to provide that sort of thing to the market. So. It's um, it's it's not easy, you know. You have to work very hard to get data uh, that is usable and sellable. That must be particularly tricky as a distributor as well, or somebody picking up distribution rights, because because you automatically become in a you're in a weaker negotiating position when you don't have access to that information. Particularly if you've got a show that's with a streamer like Netflix, where they notoriously don't really share a lot of that data with the program makers. Um, and then if you have a second season that's up for renewal, you're not, you're in a, a weaker negotiating position, I would imagine, uh, on that. And then to, I noticed you mentioned YouTube. Does, does the fact that Netflix is now putting some of their preschool shows 
on YouTube give you access to a kind of a, another dimension of kind of data and information that can be quite useful for a distributor? We have a great example for that is uh, Mighty Little Bean that we distribute internationally. It's been on Netflix for a couple of years now. And aside from the fact it's, it's written in the Netflix book, there's a whole chapter on it. It's, it's really one of the most referenced kids shows that they talk about when talking about their own success stories. But as you know, infamously, we can't get down to any granular level of detail. We just take those kind of sound bites and we regurgitate them when we pitch the show to other broadcasters. But since Netflix Junior has been, you know, in existence, Mighty Little Bean is one of the biggest performing shows on Netflix Junior. So we're able to actually get that viewing data and in a relatively short period of time too. So, you know, we don't track it regularly, but, you know, the numbers were really, really quick, particularly when they put full episodes up there. They'd had, because they do a lot of promos the new shows, but they've now started putting full episodes of Epic. They put three for Massive Bean, and the numbers are stratos you know, like in the stratosphere, which is fantastic for for our, you know, you know, for that very reason to explain popularity. Um, but you know, a lot of the buyers in the world are slightly skeptical. You know, YouTube is not a regulator, it's not Nielsen, it's not Barb, it's a commercial organization open to uh, uh, attacks and uh, open to exploitation. Are those views real or are they manufactured by bots? You know, Google themselves know that that bot viewing is an issue. Uh, and obviously they're right. know, trying to stay on top of it, but you know, it's just, as, a, as anything else, we're building a picture um, with as, as many, uh, uh, many types of research as we can possibly put our hands on and YouTube's an interesting one. And on the subject of YouTube is, then this is a question, another question for you, Dominic, is, is it harder to get hold of content for distribution now that you have a lot of large producers that are holding back content for their own platforms or smaller producers that are kind of deciding to go all in on YouTube and with more of a direct kind of connection to an audience? How does kind of a distributor fit within that kind of set up? I think it's the access to content hasn't really changed. I'd say the volume of content has increased dramatically. So the, 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 for instance, content created for YouTube, digital first content, there's, you know, hours and hours and hours of that, you know, much of it is, you know, nobody's even considered trying to sell it. I mean, they are increasingly now, uh, with, you know, Moonbug are having a lot of success with their digital first series. Um, and we were approached more than ever by people who've created brands on YouTube or are looking to, to export. The thing we often find is that it's the quality that is the limiting factor. You know, we, we often refer to ourselves as a, as a quality content distributor, and it's one of the key uh, metrics for when we're deciding what to distribute. You know, the numbers are obviously very interesting, but if we don't feel that it represents a sort of high quality product, then we'd rather leave that for somebody else to distribute. And that's because most of the buyers that we're talking to, again, are really only seeking the highest quality content that, that they, they can find. So a lot of YouTube stuff doesn't quite make the grade. But there's a lot, the market is very busy right now, as always. People feel as though it's a great time for new content. 
there's lots of platforms emerging and new platforms. So we, we see probably more submissions than we've ever had before. And do you think that the quality of content that's being uploaded to YouTube, given that there is so much of it and some of it by nature is quite low content, but in on the whole, are you seeing that there is an, a general increase in, in the quality of content? Now people know that YouTube is a serious platform that's not going anywhere. I think there's there's a lot of content that probably has been on there for four or five years. And if you were to go back and look at the initial videos that they were putting out, particularly in animation, they will have been improving the quality of the animation as years have gone by. They've reinvested um, in, in bringing on better storytellers, you know, bringing on better better uh, animators. And so, you know, you are seeing that that upward trend um, uh, because not, you know, it, it is a viable platform to, to build a brand. And um, I think bigger companies with, with more development money and more money up front, they're able to sort of take, you know, go YouTube first as a, as a viable strategy. And just following up on that, do you, I, I kind of noticed from some of the producers that are kind of pivoting to doing some stuff on YouTube, part of what needs, they need to adjust their kind of mindset on a bit is just how much content they need to do and the commitment to kind of being able to kind of schedule content two or three times a week. It is a very different model from the way program makers um, traditionally kind of approach making content. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. Emily, I had a question following on from that, which was in terms of value, what route to market do you think offers the best potential for producers of kids content? Is it YouTube or is it the streaming platforms or is it kind of um, the traditional broadcasters? I mean, I would have a very strong opinion on YouTube that that there does need to be a window preserved to have a meaningful YouTube presence for any kids brand out there right now. Um, I kind of have a mantra that basically YouTube is the new free TV. Um, and that's not to say that free TV doesn't have a value. It definitely does in, in a local market for sure. Nobody's going to turn down a free TV window. Uh, and it does also hold sway with toy companies and kind of people who maybe aren't as in the thick of the kids media space. So they, they will still always ask for their, their free TV uh, window. But the, the, the YouTube window needs to be preserved in any distribution deal you do. Uh, and I've definitely noticed examples of series over the past that have obviously done exclusive deals with streamers that have hamstrung any presence outside of those streamers in an over the top capacity um, and YouTube specifically. Um, and it's kind of, it, it, it's so hard for independent producers because they're just trying to get the green light, right? The green light is the business. Yeah. And, and imagining a YouTube window that's gonna support a brand, you know, two years after the thing's been produced and probably another year after it's been actually distributed on a platform of decent distribution and um, is kind of just feels like very removed, but it, it does take a lot of discipline. And, you know, a kid's brand that's not on YouTube today, it, it, it's just not going to, it's just not going to work. You know, it's not going to, it's not going to build at scale. And um, it, it really, really needs to be there. Uh, obviously it's good to see the, some of the over the top, well, Netflix, Netflix specifically that we were talking about earlier, building a big, um, brand presence and building their own YouTube presence that, that potentially other brands like Mighty Little Beam, Dom, can capitalize on. And I know, like you said, the, the discussion around wh what the views are on that. I mean, even if there's bots in there, Dom, it's two billion out of Netflix Junior's four billion views total. So 
you need Seems like a, a, quite an army of clone clone wars army of bots to be pumping that up so it's been a massive storm's army there <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> um so the YouTube presence has to be preserved. After that, there's different ways of doing things. You know, I think if you look at the example of something like Bluey that went very local in Australia with the free to air straight away and then managed to get on the wave of Disney Plus and Disney Junior globally afterwards. And um, like that was a really, um, like really strategic, um, I'd say a little bit of luck involved as well because, you know, Disney Plus at that time was was rolling out and hadn't gone everywhere. And, and, and as it happened, that particular wave just, just brought that content home. And obviously now it's, it's kind of come full circle. It's on the BB, uh, on CBBC in the UK. So that, that is one great way of doing it. And I think they also had a great, had a great opportunity to trial their bigger brand extensions in Australia first, and then roll those out to the States and the UK. Like that was a really great way of doing that. But that's not to say that obviously hitting a big platform a big platform first or hitting you know uh, pay tv pay tv platforms having that support building that content uh, volume as well is really important you know people want to have brands straight out the gate but you need to have lots of content for kids to engage with otherwise you're not going to get that that love even though you know your consumer product partners will probably be like ah, it's out there we should be selling stuff you know and again that takes real discipline and and and, and kind of stalwart kind of stoicism to just go no we need to wait it needs to build and then go and you've seen that with brands if you look back in the early days of Paw Patrol that was really just bubbling along for about two two or three years before it suddenly right. caught fire you know building volume building presence and what was the tipping point for Paw Patrol do you think I don't know it was a number of years ago um I never I never got under the skin of that but it, you know you're talking it was bubbling along on on Nick Jr for like a good 2 years like on, on a pay TV platform obviously across Europe and 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 the US and Latin and uh, and then suddenly it just it just started to go so maybe it was a critical mass of volume it suddenly started hitting free to airs but again free to airs are only going to be interested in it because it has 26 52 episodes you know it's not just kind of this piecemeal oh i've got 12 episodes here that just doesn't work for those platforms and, um, and do you th i'm sorry so i was going to wanted to pick up on what you're saying about netflix and youtube how does how does Netflix kind of rationalise that decision, do you think? Because um, the BBC, I know that kind of the BBC would often um, have kind of big discussions about their presence on YouTube, how, whether it was marketing, whether it was, whether their content was helping to support and grow another platform. Um, how does Netflix kind of rationalise that, do you think? Well, I think, you know, they're obviously dipping their toe quite strategically into it. And it's been they've been easing themselves into the the, the sea of YouTube probably the last six months in, in terms of going full episodes and stuff like that. And um, the thing is, a preschool, like more is more. The more a kid views the content, the more they're going to really want to view the content if they like it. Obviously, if they don't like it, then they'll probably tell you that, too. Um, and I think, you know. It, it, it can feel very uncomfortable to begin with to get people to come around to this idea that putting something on YouTube is a good thing. Not all of it. Don't like, you know what I mean? Don't drop the whole trousers. Do you know what I mean? Uh, like it's, it's, it's in moderation. But, you know, that that first of all, it, YouTube is the most penetrated platform on the on the planet. It has ubiquitous access. It's available on any device that has Internet. You don't need to log on. You don't need anything. That's the broadness of the audience that you're reaching. And if you can get them interested in your 
in your show and, and get kids really into it, then that's amazing. And, and if you've only got one or two or three episodes, you can guarantee a parent of a preschooler will need to have more <laughs> variety coming into their TV screen day in, day out. It's a really great strategy. Um, and I'd also say it does serve Netflix subscribers because, you know, again, you're out with your kid. You might be in granny and granddad's house. You might be on holidays. You might be in the car. You know, Netflix isn't always available. Like YouTube has that 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 just that broad ability to just be picked up anywhere. And, and being able to get a little bit of their favorite show somewhere on the go is is, is a good thing. It's only going to make them love it more. So, I, I, you know, it, it, it's the right strategy as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think most certainly parents of younger kids and preschoolers out and about wouldn't really click a Netflix app on a phone or a tablet and hand it to the kids in the backseat of the car. It's it's straight to YouTube. Yeah. So that makes complete sense that Netflix would put two or three episodes of content on their Netflix Junior YouTube channel. It, it, you're right. It makes complete sense. Um, coming to you, Dominic. So what what does success look like to you in 2021 in terms of content distribution and, and given that we've just been through almost 18 months of um, the pandemic that really turned the whole distribution um, kind of pattern on its head what does now at this point in time what does content distribution success look like to you? Going back a little bit to the, the question earlier, which is, you know, distribution is all about exactly you know, what it says on the tin. It's getting your product distributed and seen by as many people as possible. That's the end game. Um, of course, making a series, it's not something you can do in your garden shed. It's an incredibly expensive, particularly if you're going to make an animated series, which you think might end up on the BBC, for example it's going to cost you millions of pounds. Now, 99.9% .9 of the producers we work with, they don't have millions of pounds. There are very few companies out there, and we work with some who have self-finance from scratch. Um, and those people are in a luxurious position of being able to choose where they want their show to be distributed and where they want it to go because they've paid for it, they've made it. The other 99.9% basically have to go with whoever's prepared to pay them. Yeah. And so you have really very little choice. So I think in terms of what is success, number one is partly what Emily uh, referred to is the green light. Everybody wants their show to be made. And that means if the show costs $10 million, somebody has to give them $10 million. It has to come from somewhere. So for us, the first key stage in success is getting the show financed. Now that not might that might mean you still have loans, you know, people do have to borrow and there are gaps and etc. But you know, our goal is to try to get the show greenlit by hook or by crook, working with the producers. And it's an incredibly long, arduous, tedious, frustrating journey for many, many people. So, you know, I'd say that's that's really the key thing is getting it done. And and ultimately that covers your cost. You haven't even made any money. There's no profit in that. That's just literally having the right to make it and put it out there. And hopefully somebody will find it and watch it. And potentially you might make some money. What we then do is once that process, the success for us is selling it further and wider to other countries, other territories, other platforms. Because ultimately, you know, to coin the phrase, that's the gravy. That's what that's where the profit is. Once you've financed it, 
the risks of everything else is a paying for you know the loans that you've got potentially paying for your next series and or your development of another series so ultimately for us finding one two five ten deals after the first one is really is what we would like to sort of consider as success enabling a producer to get to a second series mm. and a third series and then at that stage you know the the holy grail you start selling holy grails and that's kind of what everybody's aiming for great yeah i mean i completely agree i've been in the position of having content that you develop part of the part of the main hurdle that you want to get through is who's going to pay for it and and that's one of the reasons why the streamers end up being so attractive because they're potentially in position if you're a program maker that they'll they'll cash the check for the for the series and it takes an enormous amount of problems out of your kind of out of your kind of um yeah that you don't have to deal with anymore um dominic kind of one question i had was whether what's your advice to kind of brand owners in terms of if they're starting with a product where they should be where they should be going and when they should be um looking to kind of launch it kind of where and, and when really i think i'd say to anybody who is doing this for the first time to really keep an open mind i i, I wouldn't I wouldn't put one platform or one type of distribution over another i think you know when you're starting out you should talk to all of them um if you are in a luxurious position and you have interest from more than one party then of course you need to think about what's your long-term strategy as you mentioned it might be that you just want the money to make it and that's all you've ever dreamed of and that's you're happy with that what happens after you've made it you know you don't worry too much we would advise everybody to think longer term if they can because ultimately those rights that that Emily mentioned, the, the right to exploit on YouTube, the right to sell it to other parties, the right. If you give everything away up front, you will, by the time you finish the series, be very frustrated because it all it might just be done and dusted. So you need to retain as much or get back as much as you possibly can. And that is very difficult if somebody's paying for 100% of the show. You may only end up with a very small percentage on the uh, on the total property, you know, than it would be if you're working on the big American studios, for example. Um, but yeah, try to you know and work with people like Jeff right, or any other distributor. There are many many out there who are experienced and can advise uh, people right from you know the get go. Uh, we don't just do the sales and we don't just do the sort of technical bit. We actually do provide strategic advice as well, which is which is very useful, I think. Emily, um, just thinking a, a similar question to you, actually. So if money was no object and you had content that you had made, what would be your favoured distribution strategy and, and, and what type of content would you make? Oh, my goodness. No, this is that's a juicy one. Um, I would make an animated series about myself. Joking. Um, <laughs> I would make, <laughs> you know, listen, I've been I've been delving into Netflix in such depth over the last year, so so I I do have a kind of a Stockholm syndrome um, feeling towards them. You know, it's a great platform, and they, and they're doing some really good stuff. But I, you know, for me, it's it's maintaining that that YouTube that YouTube space. You need to have a YouTube presence for your brand, and it's a really fun thing to do because you have that direct that direct relationship with your audience then. Um, and I think that's really, really, uh, really a really fun place to, to play in. 
if you know you're passionate about your content and this is your creative and this is what you've made you know i think that's that's really 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 valuable but there's lots of different ways of doing of 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 getting to market and there's lots of different ways of of getting things financed and 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 we've seen there's no mag- there's no magic formula which is a great thing there's lots of magic formulas you know and, and things come from lots of places and it's mm-hmm. also about considering the content you know it everything doesn't have to be a big massive commercial success you know there's some really really great series that are I would say Hilda on Netflix that's like really good storytelling interesting quirky you know exactly right and it's not necessarily going to be in Tesco you know and that's that's fine you know it's it's got so much integrity and 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 creativity in it that it's and it's, it's just so beautiful so I think there's lots of different ways of thinking about about you know the different type of content that you're making and how it can fit into a bigger a, a bigger distribution strategy but yeah that that youtube holding holding space for that youtube strategy i think is is the most fun now, uh, as a creator um having space to have a direct conversation with your audience is always is always is always the crack mm. yeah i agree and i think sometimes particularly with content that that's aimed at slightly older kids maybe maybe six plus you've also got to think about the roblox and the fortnights now where there's, yes. there's a bit of a bleed where content can sit equally across those and and you can even show some of your content on those platforms it's not just broadcasters or, or our partners or youtube that can have the moving pictures they yes. can exist within those other platforms too so certainly that's something that that I find really fascinating. fascinating is that there's this bleed now across platforms and not specifically content broadcast type platforms it's in gaming platforms too and, and that's, yeah and you're seeing that particularly amongst some toy brands where they're kind of almost becoming platform agnostic i know that lego kind of almost see each of their toys and their sub brands as brands that can then navigate across different platforms fabulous well i think we're we're coming up towards the end of our session. So thank you for joining us today. It's been fascinating. I could sit and, and, and talk for another hour, but we'd love to have you back at some point in the future too. But thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, thanks very much, guys. If you enjoyed the podcast, please rate this episode and subscribe to the series. It would be enormously appreciated. And thank you very much for listening. We really hope that you tune into the next episode. Bye.